Our gospel reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 15. Jesus called the crowd and said to them, Stand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Then Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are a lot of good reasons why we in this congregation and and lots of Lutheran congregations tend to print the scripture readings for the day in the bulletin when you come today and put that on your chair instead of putting a Bible on your chair or asking you to bring your own Bible and then looking everything up. I mean, yes, it's quicker the way we do it. That's part of it. But it also keeps us literally on the same page. There are, after all, hundreds of different translations of the Bible. And if we tried to read something out loud together, like we usually read the psalm, and we had 15 different translations in the room, it would be a little bit chaotic. Putting our scripture readings in the bulletin also makes them easier to find, so that if you haven't picked up a Bible in a while or ever, you're not frantically looking through trying to find Isaiah or 2 Corinthians, feeling like you're the only person who doesn't know where they are and everyone else is already there. It's also maybe easier to focus on our reading for today if you're not distracted by the other stories that are happening around it, I guess. But that brings us to the fact that there are also distinct disadvantages to the way we do it. Because, after all, reading in English means we're always reading a translation of the Bible and not their original languages. Having a variety of translations is the best idea. It enriches our experience. 
being able to hear that your neighbor's Bible has a different word than yours can be a great conversation starter. Why is that? What does that difference mean? It's also a more accurate way to encounter the Bible because many Greek and Hebrew words can be translated faithfully and accurately by different English words. It's also important not to let ourselves get tricked into thinking these stories happen in a vacuum because, of course, they're always related to what's come before and what's coming afterward. That's part of what we're trying to do in a sermon is give that bigger context of our scripture reading. The Bible has evolved over time. Besides those countless languages that it's been translated into, it's changed in other ways too. In their original form, these stories didn't have verse numbers or chapter numbers. Those were added later so that we could all find our place, especially with different translations. But sometimes it gives us a false sense of division between events. We have to remember that Jesus wasn't thinking to himself, oh, that's right, we're in chapter 15 now. I shouldn't say what I said in chapter 14. In addition, scribes over time appear to have sometimes made errors in their translation. At least once in the King James Version of the Bible, somebody changed a female disciple's name to a male name in the letters in the New Testament. Scholars are now discovering ancient manuscripts that suggest that the story of Mary and Martha, um, two sisters who appear a couple of times in the Bible, might originally have been a story of two different Marys. If you go to the scroll that's 1,800 years old, you can see that somebody has changed one of the Mary's names to Martha. It's just that nobody looked at that scroll for 1,800 years. <laughs> that's another sermon for another day, but it's very interesting. The point of all of this is simply to say, words, biblical words and otherwise, they matter. They shape what we think and how we believe. One of the features of many Bibles is a little title over each story to give you an idea of what you're going to encounter as you read it. The prodigal son, and then the story. The good Samaritan, and then the story. The feeding of the 5,000, and then the story. That's great. It gives you like a little road map. Except that it might also sometimes keep you from exploring different roads. What if we had called the parable of the prodigal son the parable of the generous father? We could. Or the parable of the resentful older brother. Could call it that too. The parable of the good Samaritan could easily be called the parable of how to recognize your neighbor. The feeding of the 5,000. Most of those stories tell you that in addition to the 5,000 men who were counted, there were women and children. So it wasn't 5,000, it could have been 10, 15, even more. Jesus knows that words matter. That's the topic of the first part of our reading for today. Just before we started reading, some of the religious leaders and scholars of the day have come to Jesus and asked him why his followers aren't following some of the standard ritual protocol around hand-washing and food. In response to that, Jesus launches into this impassioned speech about the proper place of religious ritual and practice. 
He says the, the point of all this isn't to create these religious practices that wall us off from the world or protect us from the world. Because it's not these practices that create the problems, as if we could keep everything bad out of us. He says it's what, it's what comes out of our mouths. It's what we say and what we do and how we act. That's what matters. That's what can defile us. How easy he seems to be saying that we get into arguments about whose religious rituals are best, most faithful, and yet miss the reality that all of those practices, whatever they are, hand-washing, food rituals, they're all meant to help us live with hope and mercy and justice. Jesus is right in line with ancient Hebrew prophets when he says all this. Over and over again, they remind people, look, God doesn't care about your fancy worship services or your fancy prayers or your important rituals if you turn around and treat your neighbor like dirt. Now, after that speech comes a story that many Bibles will call the Canaanite woman's faith. If you have a Bible, go home and look it up and see if you have a little title for this story. That's probably what it is. Jesus leaves this discussion with the crowd and his disciples, and he goes to the area of Tyre and Sidon, where he meets this Canaanite woman. All three of those names tell us that Jesus is now not among other Jewish, Jews primarily, but among religious outsiders, at least as far as religion is concerned. The first thing that happens to him is that he is met by this woman who is desperate to heal her daughter. Now that kind of thing happens to Jesus all the time. People come to him and they are desperate for healing for themselves or for someone they love. But you might notice that Jesus did not respond to this woman the way he normally responds to people. First, he ignores her. He doesn't answer her at all. Then the disciples want to send her away because she's yelling and apparently kind of irritating them. And while Jesus doesn't exactly send her away, he does bluntly insult her by saying, I'm not here for her. I'm here for the people of Israel. And finally, when she throws herself at his feet and just begs him to help, he calls her a dog. Thousands upon thousands of words and pages of commentary have been filled with trying to explain why this story isn't as bad as you think it is. Why, what Jesus said was not really as much of an insult in the first century. He used the diminutive word, which means he called her a puppy. Is that better? I don't think that's better. The story is pretty plain. It doesn't try to make any excuses. Jesus preaches about the hypocrisy of doing all these religious rituals and then treating your neighbor poorly. He says, it's not what goes into you that defiles, it's what comes out of you. He specifically names slander as a thing we should avoid. And then he is handed an opportunity to put his own sermon into action 
and he totally fails. So what if that's the title we gave to the story? What if we called it the one where Jesus messes up? Or the one where Jesus learns a transformative lesson? You might at this moment be feeling a little uncomfortable at the idea that Jesus could have gotten something wrong. That has not been our standard approach to Jesus in the church. Many of us were taught that Jesus never made a mistake, that he never sinned, that he was perfect in every way. A lot of that teaching doesn't come straight from Scripture. It comes from later interpretations of Scripture. And yes, as Christians, we hold to this belief that Jesus, something about Jesus is unique. He is God and human in a way that has not, it did not happen before and has not happened since. There is something completely unique about what God is up to in Jesus, fully human, fully God. But if Jesus was fully human, then he must have made at least one mistake. That is part of being human. You can't get away from it. When we suffer, when we grieve, when we hunger, when we are hurt or afraid, when we act for justice, when we welcome children, when we feed those who are hungry, we often say to ourselves, Jesus is with us in this. Jesus knows what this is like. He's been here. When we are facing the hardest, worst things, death itself even, we say to ourselves, we're not alone. Jesus has gone before us. He knows this experience. He's waiting there for us. So wouldn't Jesus have to know what it's like to eat your own words? To realize that you've not even lived up to your own standards for yourself? To experience that flash of understanding, that wrench in your gut, that sinking feeling in your heart that is telling you the unvarnished painful, sometimes humiliating truth that you just got it completely, totally wrong. The more I read this story, the more I think that that is the gift it has for us. We should not ignore the steady, unbroken, persistent faith of this woman. Her determination to hold Jesus to his own words even if she doesn't know he said them. We can welcome the people like her in our lives, people who have the courage to tell a hard truth, to name our hypocrisies, to hold us accountable. In them is the Spirit of God. And when they do, when we come to our senses and realize we made a mistake, we have the gift in this story of knowing that Jesus meets us there, is right next to us, even in our stupid, foolish, thoughtless, sometimes cruel errors. That God knows what it's like to hear a hard truth and face an even harder choice, which is, what do I do now? Turn and walk away? Defend myself to the last breath? Pretend it never happened? Issue that classic half-hearted apology, 
I'm sorry if you were offended. What if, like Jesus, we can recognize the opportunity in front of us to turn and go the other direction, to face our mistake, and let it change us? Take a deep breath, admit we were wrong, and waste no time in explanations or excuses or justifications. Just change. If you had a Bible with you, if you do, if you have one at home, you'll see that what happens after this story is over today is that Jesus keeps going further along the Sea of Galilee where great crowds of all these outsiders come to him, just like the Canaanite woman. They bring him the people they love who are desperate for healing, people who are blind, people who can't walk, people who are hurt in one of a thousand ways. They put them at Jesus' feet, and the story says and he healed them. No pushback, no excuses, no exclusions. 180 degrees different from what we just heard. The story where Jesus gets it wrong, and that changes everything. Thanks be to God that we have such a gift. Amen.